their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say we need to go green as fast as we Who doesn't love a good basic dictatorship? That, of course, liberal leader Justin Trudeau talking about his love of the basic dictatorship of China. Hello and welcome to the Brian Lilly podcast. I am, of course, Brian Lilly. And why am I bringing up Justin Trudeau in a clip from a couple of years ago where he he talked about China and, and his admiration for it? Well, because there's a new development in his love of, of basic dictatorships, a love of of governments that, well, if I were him, I wouldn't be courting. But then again, I'm not Justin Trudeau. Let's remind you of what the liberal leader said at his his ladies' night, the chance for you to get to know Justin and ask him all the intimate questions. He was asked which country other than Canada he admired most, and and his answer shocked many, although at the time, it was really only Sun News Network reporting on it. But here's what Trudeau said. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say, we need to go green as fast as we need to start you know, investing in solar. I mean, there is a flexibility that I know Stephen Harper must dream about of having a dictatorship that he could do everything he wanted. Uh, but I find quite interesting. So fast forward to last week, and Justin Trudeau was supposed to be celebrating the Chinese New Year. It's the year of the sheep or the ram, depending on, on which animal you prefer anyway. He was throwing a big party in Toronto, and he wanted to be seen with the cool kids. And who are the cool kids? Well, Canada's, the ambassador of China to Canada, Lu Zaihuao. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. I'm not an expert in saying Chinese names, but I, I'm giving it my best. And so the Chinese ambassador was invited to a Liberal Party fundraiser in Toronto, and they advertised that he was going to be there. In the end, the ambassador did the right thing, and he didn't step up because, well, it would be unseemly for a diplomat to be going to an actual fundraiser for any political party. You just don't do that if you're a diplomat. That is seen as interfering in the internal politics of a country. But obviously Trudeau and his brain trust, like Jerry Butts, uh, they didn't see a problem with that. They didn't see a problem with inviting a diplomat who is credentialed to represent their government to the government of Canada and inviting them to a partisan fundraiser because their hope was that that they would be seen with the Chinese ambassador and that might curry them some favor with the many Chinese Canadian voters, although in, in my experience, many of them don't actually like the government of China. It's why they came to Canada. But the Trudeaus have a long history of liking autocratic governments and so they invited the ambassador. Like I said, he didn't come. Well, it turns out this is not the only time that Trudeau's inviting diplomats from foreign governments to come out to partisan events, including fundraisers. The New Democrats put out a news release on Monday criticizing Trudeau and questioning why the one of the, the, the diplomats from Pakistan is getting involved in Canadian partisan politics. Foreign Affairs uh, critic for the NDP, Paul Dewar, put out a statement saying foreign government should not be meddling in Canada's internal politics and Canadian politicians should never use foreign diplomats for partisan gain. The Liberal Party of Canada has shown poor judgment by inviting 
foreign diplomats to partisan events and worse, using their presence to raise money for the Liberal Party of Canada. What are they talking about here? Well, this time it's Pakistan's Consul General in Toronto who attended both a Liberal Party fundraiser and a campaign office opening for a Liberal candidate in the Toronto area. Now, Dewar has actually written to Pakistan's High Commission. They don't have an embassy here. Being a Commonwealth country, they have a High Commission. And Dewar wrote to the High Commissioner, uh, Abrar Hashimi, Acting High Commissioner for Pakistan, saying, Dear Mr. Hashimi, I was concerned to read a recent media report that the Pakistani Consul General in Toronto, Ashgar Ali Golo, attended a fundraiser for the Liberal Party of Canada in Mississauga. According to the article in the Globe and Mail, Mr. Golo also participated in a partisan event for a Liberal Party candidate in Scarborough. I am sure you will agree that the participation of an official representative of the government of Pakistan in partisan events such as these could be perceived as an expression of support for a particular political party. This sort of interference in domestic Canadian politics would, of course, be inappropriate behavior for a professional diplomat. Interesting. I just want you to take note of the two countries that Justin Trudeau is courting. And it's not a comment on the people that come from those countries, but it is a comment on their governments. China and Pakistan. China, which we know, you know, he says he admires their basic dictatorship because they can go green on a dime. They build a coal-powered plant a week in China. They have an abysmal environmental record. Their deal with President Obama on greenhouse gas emissions allows them to continue to raise their greenhouse gas emissions every year, peaking in the year 2013. So we know that even what he admired China on is a farce. And we know that their, their respect for human rights in their most basic forms, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion, these things, they're not respected in China at all. They've got a censored internet. They have censored media. They have political parties only as far as the government allows political parties to exist. They have religion only insofar as the government allows it to exist. You need to belong to an official Chinese church. Otherwise, you are in an underground church movement and you can go to jail. Religious minorities, ethnic minorities are persecuted in China. Yet Justin Trudeau wants to be seen partying like it's, I don't know, I was going to say 1999, but it, partying like it's the year of the ram with the Chinese ambassador. Who is running the brain trust over at liberal headquarters? And then you've got the government of Pakistan. Pakistan is ostensibly some type of democracy. They do have elections. They also have a corrupt government, one that... Um, has many ties in its intelligence and military establishment to the Taliban. They support Islamist movements throughout the region. We also know that the government of Pakistan enforces blasphemy laws. We know that the only Christian ever put into cabinet was was killed. There hasn't actually been been justice in that case as far as I can recall. These are the countries that Justin Trudeau is trying to curry favor with as he seeks votes any way he can get them. Doesn't that tell you a little bit about the judgment of the liberal leader? Doesn't that tell you a little bit about his view of the world? His Does he actually care about the things that he, he says he stands for in Canada? Because he courts governments that don't 
respect the very rights that he's going to tell you in true substitute drama teacher style that he supports. Then again, his father was good friends with Fidel Castro, his brother, his brother Sasha, once wrote a, an article for the Toronto Star describing Fidel Castro as some sort of Superman. And, of course, his brother Sasha, who's also a foreign policy advisor to Justin, partnered with Iran State Media to make a documentary. So, this tells you so much more. It's, it, it's part of a pattern with the Trudeau family and the type of people that they are going to back, the type of people that they're going to support. And that should tell you a little bit about the t their vision of Canada and what Canada should be doing in the world. I don't know about you, but it's worrisome to me. Stick around. Lots more to come here on the podcast. My name's Brian Lilly. Do check us out, brianlilly.com, facebook.com slash brianlilly. And make sure that you click like while you're there so that you continue to get all the updates you need. More to come. You know, all of the work that's been done on the health and physical education curriculum has been about uh, making sure that there's age-appropriate information. Kathleen Wynn, probably the last person that I want deciding who teaches what or what is taught when it comes to sex education in my children, but this is the woman most responsible for the new curriculum that has been unveiled in the province of Ontario. And you're going to hear it celebrated by media, well, not just in Ontario, but probably across the country. Headline on the National Post was all about how, no, the lesbian premier is not pushing a gay agenda on your kids. Well, that's not actually what most people are worried about. But hey, why don't you pick on a straw man and help out the left a little bit more, National Post? That seems to be your job these days. Uh, Global News talked about how this puts Canada or Ontario uh, at, at the front of you know, changing how sex ed is taught across Canada. And the Toronto Star, which received advanced copies of the uh, of the new curriculum, but didn't post them online like they do with most documents they receive. They didn't put them up on Scribd or anything like that. They just kept them to themselves and selectively told you what it was about. The Star wanted you to think that this was all about teaching, that sexting's bad. And so there's a lot of misinformation out there about what's going on, such as, well, of course, I saw this posted online. Of course, I want my kids to learn the proper body parts. That's going to be taught in grade one in the new curriculum. In my kid's school, that was taught in kindergarten. Started in kindergarten. You're not going to call it your, your Johnson or your Willie or your whatever. No, you're going to call it your penis. Uh, I've never understood the fascination with having a bunch of four-year-olds walking around saying penis, 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 but then again, I'm not a kindergarten teacher. So that's really not a big deal. And for people who are arguing against it or arguing for it, that this is a good thing, it's neither here nor there. It's happening already, just as it's already happening in schools across Ontario and across Canada, that kids are being taught that sexting is a bad thing. You shouldn't take naked photos of yourself and share them on your phone or your iPod or your computer, that this can lead to great harm. That's already being taught, so we didn't need a curriculum update for that. 
Now, I've been saying from the beginning that this is about something more, that this is about age appropriateness of the material. The premier says that all the all the material is age appropriate. So when they start teaching gender identity and that genders can change in grade three, that that's fine. I tend to disagree. I think that parents should have had an input on that, but she talked to the experts and held a faux consultation with a select group of parents who most many of whom didn't even know they were being consulted because they didn't participate. But that's that's for the premier to decide because she's going to shove this through come hell or high water. Kathleen Wynne was the education minister in Dalton McGuinty's government when the, the 2010 curriculum was unveiled. She and Benjamin Levin, the former deputy premier, or sorry, deputy minister of the education department, the guy now up on child pornography charges who is pleading guilty, yep, yeah, they, they were running the department that developed this. Reg Cohen can say all he wants that, well, they didn't, he didn't have anything to do with it. The man ran the department. So you've got that. Keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about whether teaching kids about gender identity, gender expression, starting in grade three is a good idea. I don't think so. What about teaching about masturbation in grade six? Maybe the kids know about it. Maybe they don't. Maybe that's the right spot, but we could have a discussion about it. What about telling kids that in grade six that they shouldn't use terms like husband and wife because they're not inclusive enough? When did that become part of sex ed? I'd like to know that. I'd like to know why they're all throughout the sex ed curriculum. There are issues of traditional First Nations teachings, Inuit, um, uh, Aboriginal teachings, strewn throughout. What does... Uh, whether I can't remember some of the terms that I read going through this. I don't know what any of them have to do with sex education, but it does tell you the way that this government is going to take education. It's it, it's about a political agenda. Uh, traditional First Nations teaching is now part of sex ed. Hmm. I, what the two have to do with each other, I don't know. Am I against teaching? First Nations history, Aboriginal history, absolutely not. Does it need to be sewn throughout the entire curriculum as I expect it's going to be in every single department? No, no it doesn't. But that's what Kathleen Wynne has done. Along with a lot of other things, let me just uh, reference a couple of them here. Hold on a second. In grade 7, students will start learning about oral sex, anal sex, and STDs. Is that the right spot? Is that where you want your kids being taught that in school, period, or at that age? I think that that's a valid conversation to have. The Premier doesn't. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to why this was rushed up. And I brought up this issue uh, yesterday in the podcast. I said, look... Last week, the Premier was saying that the new curriculum would be posted online within weeks. Then suddenly, it becomes Monday. On Monday morning, the Premier was asked about that, and she denied that it had anything to do with her ongoing troubles over allegations that two of her top people were involved in bribing a would-be candidate on her behalf. Here's what she said. Premier, is the minutes of the sex ed curriculum today an attempt to get people talking about something other than Sudbury? 
Actually, the, it's interesting that you asked that question because the, the timing of this release has been on the books for some time. And in fact, one of the, one of the motivators was that there's going to be a protest tomorrow at, uh, at Queen's Park. And we've known about that for some time. And we wanted to make sure that before that protest happens on the health and physical education curriculum, that people had the, uh, had the information. So that was one of the, way, that was one of the reasons that, uh, that the release is happening today. Kathleen Wynne wants this entire conversation to be all about sex ed, and she wants it to be about those parents that she will portray as wanting to keep kids in the dark versus those that want kids enlightened. I don't know any parents that want kids kept in the dark, but I do know this. If she wins this war over what is being talked about, then everyone's going to forget about the bribery allegations in Sudbury. And that's why she brought it up, because she knows that she can control the media. She knows that she can control the Toronto Star. She knows that she can control the TV reporters. She knows that she can control large parts of the media on this issue and get people tut-tutting those yokels, those social conservatives, those religious zealots that want kids not knowing anything about sex. People that don't actually exist. Maybe they think it's better taught in the home but saying the, the people that they're arguing against simply do not exist. The reason she's brought this fight up now and the reason she's reveling in it is it takes the focus off the fact that the Ontario, Ontario's chief electoral officer says that Patricia Sorbera and Jerry Lougheed look like they broke the law in offering jobs to Andrew Olivier to get him to step down. Violation of Ontario's Election Act. Let's not forget that, and even as we debate the sex ed curriculum, let's not take the eye off the prize of making sure that someone is held accountable for what looks like a clear violation of the law. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast, uh, brianlilly.com, facebook.com slash Lilly, or if you're listening on SoundCloud, make sure that you hit subscribe and get every each and every episode of the Brian Lilly Podcast. Stick around, more to come. Now, Bill C-51 is a 62-page omnibus bill that amends no fewer than 13 acts. The debate on the anti-terror bill, Bill C-51, continues. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the Brian Lilly Podcast, and I am, of course, Brian Lilly. The NDP is coming out strong against Bill C-51. The Liberals and the Conservatives are supporting it. Personally, I'm on the record. There's some good parts. There's some bad parts. The bill probably needs some solid amendments and tightening up of some language. But there's a false narrative taking place that says this bill only targets or unfairly targets environmentalists and others that simply want to protest. Chief Terence Nelson says Canada has never been attacked and doesn't need these this type of anti-terrorism legislation. Apparently, he's missed the the attacks on on Ottawa, on St. Jean. He's missed the Toronto 18 plot, the uh, Momenkouaja plot. The uh, you know, we could go on and on with the list of plots that have been foiled. We could also point to the many terrorism acts from outside Canada that have taken place here: bombings of embassies, the FLQ crisis. Terrorism is is not new to Canada, and it's not one specific group. It hasn't been over the decades. Right now, we're mostly talking about, almost exclusively talking about Islamic extremism, Islamic terrorism, jihadism, whatever label you want to use. 
But the idea that the, this is, you know, terrorism has never happened in Canada is laughable. But then again, so is Chief Terrence Nelson. This is a man who says there's only two ways to deal with the white man. You either pick up a gun or stand between him and his money. The, the chief is radical himself. But that doesn't mean that the NDP isn't taking a page from Justin Trudeau's book and keeping some odd company. They were citing Chief Terrence Nelson in their opposition to the bill in the House of Commons on Monday. First Nations in particular are sounding the alarm about how this bill would impact them. Grand Chief Terrence Nelson has spoken out saying that, quote, treaty rights, land rights, natural resource development, any protest like that could be considered eco-terrorist. So let me address a couple of things. One... I think it's a bad idea to uh, to be citing someone who's known for threatening violence, um, alluding to violence in their protest movement, in saying we don't need legislation to deal with threats. It's probably not the best argument that you can make. And number two, this idea that there is no threat from the environmental movement, that, well, these are just people that want to protest a pipeline. You want to protest a pipeline? Protest. I don't think that's an issue. But to claim that there's never been uh, threats from the environmental movement is laughable. Case in point, Weibo Ludwig. This is a man who lived in Alberta. He died a few years ago. Uh, Starting in the 1990s, though, he had run-ins with local authorities and local oil and gas companies over sour well drilling that he linked to stillbirths, miscarriages, and deformations in the small community that he was part of. In 2000, he was actually convicted of counseling another to possess an explosive substance, attempted uh, possession of fake dynamite, mischief by interfering with the lawful use and enjoyment of property, uh, mischief by destroying property, and possession of an explosive substance. That's just some of what he has faced over the years. 28 months in jail at the time. There were the Encana uh, uh, pipelines six uh, explosions around Encana pipelines in the Dawson Creek area of British Columbia between 2008 and 2009. That's another example of environmental terrorism that's happened. And let's not forget, there are those in the green movement who call for terrorism. In the early days of Sunnews Network, I uh, found a book called Deep Green Resistance, and there are deep green resistance chapters and movements all across North America. Now, it's a small group, but you don't need a large number of people to to carry out violence. Anyways, this book called Deep Green Resistance was written by a collective uh, of, uh, of activists, including a man from the Kingston, Ontario area named Eric McBay. The book calls for a division between above-ground movements, above-ground cells, carrying out their environmental activism in the open, and underground cells that can do things that those that want to be seen in the public eye cannot. And that includes assassinations. This was a book published saying that sometimes you need to assassinate in order to move uh, the goal, in order to move the yardsticks, in order to achieve your goals of the green movement. McBay appeared on Byline. You spell out the questions you need to ask on whether someone should be assassinated or not. How are you not advocating and encouraging people to consider, should I assassinate the Prime Minister or the President or the person in charge of the Environment Department because they're not doing enough? How can you say that you're not advocating that? 
I think that the book makes it very clear that we're not advocating that. The point of the book, as I was saying, is that we look at historical resistance movements and social movements like the struggle to end slavery, like the civil rights movement, like liberation movements against occupation, and we discuss what tactics they used and what strategies they used. I don't think that the threat from environmental uh, terrorists, extremists, whatever you want to call them, is as great as the threat that the West faces from jihadists. But to claim that there's no problem at all, that everyone's just a smiling granny that wants, uh, or a young student that wants some clean water to save the whales, that's wrong. That is factually wrong. That can be defeated with the facts. So let's have a serious debate about Bill C-51. Let's have a serious debate about how legislation or language can be tightened up. But let's not claim that there is no problem, there's never been a problem, and there won't be a problem. I hope you've been enjoying these podcasts. If you are, well, continue to uh, to support them. You can share them with your friends, your family, uh, those you don't like on Facebook and other social media. You can find me on facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Click the, uh, the thumbs up button to, to make sure that my feed shows up in yours. And, uh, of course, you can also follow along at brianlilly.com. We'll try and get these podcasts up on iTunes and other um, platforms like Stitcher in the coming days. This is a process that takes a while. But uh, in the meantime, thanks again for listening. And remember, I'm on your side.